There's a particular moment at the end of a long hunt when you have the animal cornered. And the animal looks into your eyes, deep into them to see if there's any mercy in there. And when it sees that there is not, it gives up. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Tiana. And this is Next Door Villain. A podcast where we uncover the villains to discover their humanity. Look away, look away. Turn your speakers off and take your earbuds out. Look away. Look away, because we're talking about a series of unfortunate events today. A dismal episode full of dark, terrible things that you do not want to hear about. And you should avert your ears and not listen to. <laughs> that was beautiful. I was trying to... A plus. Thank you. I was trying to fit the tone of, of the books and, and the television series a little bit. And I think your voice works well for that because it's so low, right? You could even go even lower. You could be like... Look away, look away. Look away. Yeah, that's <laughs> creepy, which is good. Yeah, we're we're uh, here today to talk about Count Olaf from the series of unfortunate events book series written by Lemony Snicket, aka Daniel Handler, uh, which was then turned into a pretty terrible movie starring Jim Carrey. Uh, <laughs> I saw that in theaters, actually. I that think I did too. <laughs> And was very disappointed. Uh, so I've kind of ignored that for this episode. And then Netflix made what I think is a pretty phenomenal series as far as being really true to the book in both story and tone. Starring Neil Patrick Harris as Count Olaf doing, I think, just an incredible job in that role. I think it's a really great series. Uh, it took me a lot of work to get Tiana to watch it so that we could do this episode. <laughs> Tiana, why didn't you like this series? For a while in the series, it kind of felt like a repeat mm. in a way where it was like, okay, he's disguised as someone else. He wants to get the um, the children for their fortune and he does something else ridiculous. And the formula just kind of went on a little bit too long for me, even though I felt that the characters were done really well. Cinematography is great. Count Olaf is a great character. You know, I love watching him. But then in the last season, though, is where it finally really got me, where it really got me interested in the series because there was more fascinating mysteries re revolving around a sugar bowl and the death of Count Olaf's father and the relationships between Count Olaf and the children. I thought that was impressive, but it just took me a while to kind of get into it. Yeah. I think I understand what you're saying. I mean, the, one of the reasons I think I loved the series so much is because I was was a big fan of the books when I was growing up. And the show just did such a good job capturing the style of the book and translating yeah. it to the screen. And so the show was very nostalgic for me. But I will say, especially approaching it as a newbie, I can see that it would be very exhausting because it is so heavy with plot and backstory and self-references and uh, all sorts of information. It, it's it's a hard show to watch 
you know, in a row over and over again, because there's just so much going on and it, it's, it's hard to obtain all that. So on that note, I think in some ways, this is going to be a difficult episode because this, the, the story is just so complicated. So I think we're probably going to have to attack Count Olaf in, in more broad strokes rather than try to really understand um, exactly what went on and who's in the right and wrong. And I think that's also part of the point of the series is that right and wrong is so complicated and difficult to understand. I think that's part of the point. Yeah, I think so too. And I'll definitely keep it more Count Olaf-y. Mm-hmm. I probably won't venture into the other characters as much. Yeah. So. All right. So first off, we got to do our 30-second villain intro challenge where we, with no preparation, attempt to explain everything about the villain and the storyline in 30 seconds so that our listeners can remember who we're talking about if you haven't seen the show or read the books in some time. Yes. Who wants to go first? You do. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. All right, three, two, one, go. All right, so Count Olaf is an eccentric uh, actor who has his theater troupe, and he's very proud of his acting, and he tries to get the Baudelaire uh, children under his wing so that he can steal their fortune. Their uh, house mysteriously uh, goes down in a fire along with their parents, um, and it's not ever known who did no, who really did that. And there are a lot of crazy things that happen with the Boudelaires and Count Olaf, and then he dies. Thumbs up. Nice wrap up there. <laughs> and then he dies. Yeah. yeah spoiler, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people die. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of them are killed by Count Olaf. Yes. Whew. In case you had any qualms about whether or not this guy was a good dude or a bad dude. <laughs> That's true. This is that does add a layer of difficulty when the villain has murdered multiple humans, including the attempted murder of a baby. Right? Multiple times. A baby, like the first time he put the baby put Sunny in a in a cage. I was like, "What?" Yeah. Obviously he doesn't like children, which we, you know, see that throughout the whole series. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I guess it's your turn. I almost yeah. forgot. <laughs> All right, three, two, one, go. Count Olaf grew up as a young, poor, orphaned boy who was recognized for having some kind of ingenuity and talent and then was indoctrinated into this group uh, called the VFD. And, and and they kind of taught him the certain way of the world. And then there was this schism in the organization where one – a part of the organization went one way and one part went the other way and he ended up on the bad side of things and then um he resented the other people and then tried to spend his whole life uh g- killing people and stuff <laughs> time i've become nicer with the stopwatch yeah i noticed <laughs> time uh, is all a construct yes it is a construct that is played with a lot in this book and series. Impressive segue. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, we, I mean, we, we talked about how this is a complicated storyline, and I think that's intentional and that there are a lot of strings left untied. Uh, and I wanted to start with a quotation from one of the characters in the TV series that I really liked and I really think kind of summed up my approach to empathizing with Count Olaf in this case. And that's uh, from one of Count Olaf's henchmen, the hook-handed man. Near the end of the series, he uh, he says, people aren't either wicked or noble. 
they're like chef salad with good things and bad things chopped and mixed together in a vinaigrette of confusion and conflict. I like how tasty that quote is. It's a great quote. Yeah. I think there's a lot of confusion and conflict in this story. And I think, I think even at the end, it's unclear exactly who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And the reason for that is because everyone has done some things that are both good and bad. Some maybe more than others. But I wanted to maybe like give a brief rundown of, of the plot for those of you who haven't revisited it in a while. And I'm going to do my best, but... It's a lot. That That's a hefty plot. So the, the Baudelaire children, their house burns down and it's strongly insinuated that it was burned down by Count Olaf and that, his, that their parents were killed in the fire. That's the start of the series. And after that, it's, it's Count Olaf attempting to steal this children's fortune through a number of different schemes and hijinks. And over time, they start to learn that their parents were involved with a secret organization, VFD, uh, which is known as the Volunteer Fire Department. And fire here is, is kind of a metaphorical term for any kind of problems in the world. Their organization's goal is to like quiet the problems of the world or create calm among things going on. And it turns out Count Olaf was a part of this organization with the Baudelaire children's parents. And at some point there was a big schism for a number of reasons. And we're, it's never really clear exactly what caused it, though there are some, some incidents that we see leading up to it. But it, eventually it caused the organization to split into the people who fight fires and the people who start fires. And Count Olaf is on the fire starting side. As we see that burning places down is kind of his primary uh, <laughs> villain move. Yeah, very dramatic and cinematic villain move. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's kind of the core of it. There's certainly a lot more, but that, that's kind of the basis of, of what's going on in this story. Yeah. Is there anything you feel needs to be added? A big thing, he, he's really good at disguises, and he just really knows how to utilize his acting skills to a degree that I did not know existed. Yeah, it's interesting that he is both portrayed as like kind of stupid often, like mm -hmm. not, not knowing how to spell word, like simple words correctly, not understanding like simple concepts, but then at the same time, like pull, putting together these elaborate plots and these elaborate disguises to try to accomplish his goals. Now, he is, like we said, a, a bad dude. There are 13 confirmed murders of his and many, many more strongly insinuated murderers as well as a lot of torture. So not a good guy, regardless of which side of the VFD you're on. How, Tiana, do you empathize with this <laughs> dude who seems to be solely motivated by stealing a fortune from children and murdering whoever he needs to in the process? Well, first, to start off with something kind of simple that I think even maybe some listeners have already thought of. When I was watching the series and he kept doing anything that he could, tricking people, acting, dressing up, anything he could to get the fortune, he was also probably thinking like the Baudelaire children didn't really do anything worthy to receive their fortune either. Yeah, I can see, understand why he might feel entitled to it because he's been through life and he's done hard work as an actor. And there's just these three kids who are now going to get a fortune for simply existing because they were born of those parents. Mm -hmm. And so I could kind of understand like, okay, neither of them maybe really deserve the fortune. <laughs> yeah, th there's a great quotation that I think really highlights the point you're making uh, where Count Olaf says, 
You don't know anything. You three children are the same as when I first laid eyes on you. You think you can triumph in this world with nothing more than a keen mind, a pile of books, and the occasional gourmet meal. You're just like your parents. I think there's a, a pretty big class thing going on here where we learn that, that Count Olaf did not have a great upbringing. He does not have a lot of money. He was raised by a couple of people who were villainous themselves and taught him to do a lot of really bad things. And I, I think that he was told that if he just had a keen mind and a pile of books that he could accomplish anything. And at one point, that's what he had. And it didn't work out. And then here's these children who are enormously wealthy. They have really every resource in the world. And I think, and I, I don't really see this acknowledged in the series, or I don't remember it being acknowledged in the series by any of them, that they had this immense amount of privilege that their parents like taught them all these things. And that's how they figure stuff out is that their parents had taught them all these really specific skills in all these different areas that that someone without an incredible amount of wealth and resources would not have been able to do. And I, I don't think they recognize how much further ahead they started out in life than a lot of other people do. And that just oh, being yeah. smart and creative is is not all it takes to get ahead in this world. Throughout this whole series, I kept, you know, really wondering why the heck fire was involved so much uh -huh. and like that metaphor we know that fire spreads quickly from a little spark and then it erupts into something more mm. and i felt like no one maybe seemed to put out count olaf's fire uh -huh. within himself and his rage against the Baudelaire family for killing his father at the opera it just seemed to start off as something small over a sugar bowl and then erupt into something bigger. And then his rage just was never put out. He didn't have anyone. Yeah. And then it led to all this destruction and chasing after the Baudelaire children and grief and regret and rage. And it didn't feel like anyone tried to put out this fire. No. In fact, the opposite happened. Some yeah. people tried to nurture it. So the man, the man with no hair and a beard and the woman with... Uh, Hair and no beard. Is that, is that me? what they're called? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we learn in, in the slippery slope that they are kind of the ones that raised him and taught him all his villainous stuff. And that they're, they are so villainous that he is scared of them. And we learn that part of his motivation, even though he, he refuses to admit it, is to be adored and loved by them. And, and for them to recognize his success. Uh, multiple other characters mention that to him or, or tell him that that's what his motivation is. And he's like, no, that's not my motivation. But then he kind of always ends up being like, I'm not looking for love and adornment. I'm just looking for the people that raised me to see the things that I did and accomplished and to recognize me for them. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that Count Olaf, from what I gathered from watching this series, Count Olaf understands that good things do not necessarily happen to good people. And I think he understands that probably even more than any other villain that we've covered so far. I mean, a lot of other villains understand that too, but he just kind of seemed to understand it to a degree that I hadn't seen before because of what happens in Count Olaf's life. Count Olaf's father was a good man. It seemed like he was a good man for the VFW who tried to put out fires and keep people VFD. safe. Not the, the VFW. VFW. <laughs> oh, VFW. I always do that. Um, but 
he was killed. And we can also see that Count Olaf understands this when he quotes the poem Be the Verse by Philip Larkin. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have kid any kids yourself. The VFD told him that the arts would keep him from the treacherous things of this world, but it did not. Mm-hmm. Treacherous things will still happen to you. They don't still happen to your dad, even when you're quote unquote good. And I feel like I've really needed to grapple with this myself, that bad things happen to good people. Yeah. And I still don't think I have fully accepted this. I don't know many people who have, especially at our age. Maybe you accept it later in life, like when you're older and wiser. (laughs) But it's hard to grapple with the unfair things that happen to people in this world that can be very treacherous. Like why does so-and-so person who has done so much good for her family and community, why does she die from cancer, for example? Why do good people lose everything? Why did healthcare workers who already sacrificed so much during the pandemic die from COVID-19 or have to deal with PTSD or... And so I'm like, why are so many bad things happening to good people? It's a common thing that people have to deal with, unfortunately, in an imperfect world. And then there are also a lot of assholes in this world where a lot of great things happen to them. Mm-hmm. Some good people are also lucky, which is great, but so many assholes are yeah. too. I think this is a, a psychological thing where like, it's easy to notice when good things happen to bad people because it's like, they're bad people. Good things shouldn't be happening. So you, so you notice them and they stand out. But the reality is that things happen to people we as humans have decided which things are good and bad. There, there are things that you can do to reduce your chances of certain bad things happening. Like if you want to reduce your chance of getting like heart disease or cancer, you know, you can eat better, you can eat healthier, but regardless, there's still a lot of random chance involved. Yeah. Yeah. Count Olaf really seems to have accepted that. And he says that like, I don't remember the exact quote, but he says this multiple times in the series about how we're just kind of like existing and and waiting to die. Like we just like are born and then we just like are on this earth and things happen to us and then then we die. Yeah. It's like random things happen. And that and the random thing part of that is what is difficult for me to grapple with the most. Yeah. You could still do everything right and boom. Yeah. You're gone. Your life changes. Something something horrendous happens. It's very hard for us to disconnect the idea that like just because you do good things that good things should happen to you mm-hmm. but it is very i think it I, I, it's not something i've fully accomplished but I, I think it would be very freeing in a sense to like let go of that idea and realize that things happen to everybody and that just yeah you know yeah it, it, i i'm both like it's freeing and then i'm also like oh that's in a way kind of really depressing but i guess the point is be good for yourself not because of how it's going to, like, don't expect the world to do good things because you do good. Do good because it makes you feel better about yourself and you'll be happier in general. Right. So Count Olaf seems to have accepted that this, that good things don't necessarily happen to good people. And I think maybe he feels that there's no use in trying to be good because of this. I mean, his dad was good. He was probably good at one point in the VFD and bad things still happened. So why would you put out fires when bad things would still happen to you? 
I guess it begs the question, why would you continue to do good things if bad things still seem to be happening to you? Yeah. I think we can understand why he arrived at that conclusion. Uh, I think we're, it would be hard-pressed to find someone to say that that is a positive conclusion to end up with, but it does make sense why one might come to that conclusion, especially someone who has lost so much and had such a difficult upbringing. N near the end, he, he says, I've lost too much to go on. My parents, my true love, my henchfolk, an enormous amount of money I didn't earn, even the boat with my name on it. Yeah. This is, this is a guy who's just been beaten down and who loves acting and doesn't realize that he can just do the thing that he loves and that he'll probably be happy if he does that. He doesn't have to be wrapped up in all this. Yeah, he doesn't. And I even thought like this series is also an interesting take on the question, what would you use your talents for? Are you going to use it for good or evil? Mm-hmm. Because the protagonists seem to use their talents to try and get out of Count Olaf's schemes. And then Count Olaf just used his amazing acting talent to wreak havoc on the world. I think some of the point of this, this story is that it's hard to know which side is right and wrong. So if I'm understanding correctly, part of the schism was because the VFD was creating this medusium mycelium oh, yeah. poison and that the hook-handed man believed that this was terrible. It basically is a chemical weapon and if it got out, it could kill tons of other people. Right. And so he basically, he blows up the lab where it's being created in an attempt to destroy it all. And I think that's one bit of evidence about how the VFD, even before the schism, was not necessarily good. And, it, and it's it's easy to see how an organization can feel like they're doing good things, but still go awry. And uh, honestly, the VFD sounded kind of like a cult. And yeah. I, I'm not confident that they were ever all good. I mean, it's, it seems like I was reading about it, how they take young children, they like pull them out of their houses by their ankles, strip them away from their parents with basically no warning. Yeah. Th this is not a good organization in my mind. Like it has two factions, but we're hearing this story from the perspective of one of their members. We're being told it by people who are part of the organization and believe that they do good things. But I, the evidence that I've seen is that like they seem like a, a cult that orphans children and then trains them to be spies who go around doing things in the world, trying to make it a better place on their own agenda with no oversight by anyone else. Um, they just get to decide what's right and wrong. So no wonder there was a schism because... That's a very subjective thing. And when you're part of a group or an organization at a very young age, it gets really ingrained in you, like the mission and the values and what they stand for. And so it's a greater chance of you not really questioning the organization that you're a part of if you have been a part of it for so long. So there's yeah. definitely some danger there with some potential brainwashing or gradual brainwashing. So I know... I'll cut this out if this sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but I think you found something out without realizing it <laughs> when you said your last comment. Yeah, I didn't I didn't have that in my notes. I, I wish I had, but it, I just it was something that popped into my mind from my reading and my research for this episode. So I, I apologize if that point was kind of confusing. I was No, you know, no, it wasn't confusing. Out. You made me realize something, maybe. You may have found something out. Okay. And I know that the VFD is anti-fire, so 
this theory might not hold out, but to this day, we don't know who burned down the Baudelaire house, right? True. It's it's insinuated that Count Olaf, but it, when Count Olaf was dying at the end, they basically, they like accused him to his face of burning down their house and killing their parents. And he was like, you don't know the half of it or something like that. So it, it was left, it was left a question. It was never definitive that he did it. Right. It was never definitive. And you explained that the VFW takes children VFW. at a young age. VF... <laughs> I don't know why I want to say VFW. There's something in my subconscious. You can Google because it. The VFW was was a great bar to drink at in college and swing dance. What's it? Yeah. In Fargo. That's where oh. we would go for a good time, drink swing dance with some like old ladies. <laughs> Wait, did you do that? Yeah. In college, you, you swing danced with old ladies? I think it was right after college. Okay. But yeah, a couple times at the VFW. They'd always have a live band. I, I didn't know the single life was that rough for you. <laughs> anyway, sorry, what were you what were you saying about the, the VFW? VFD takes children from a young age. What if the VFD were the ones that actually took down the Baudelaire house? I think it's not out of the question. And that would really spice some things up. I think it's a, a conspiracy theory for sure. It's a bit of a stretch, but uh, I, as convoluted as everything is, it's certainly a possibility. Because the Baudelaire children, they didn't know about the VFD, right? What if the Baudelaire's, the parents were trying to keep them away from the VFD for whatever reason? Mm -hmm. And then maybe someone else in the VFD disagreed with that, burned it down so that the Baudelaire children could then become VFD yeah. members. Because the Baudelaire children were so talented. Mm -hmm. And then they created this whole story and scheme to make it seem like their parents were these noble members so that the children would grow up and try to be like their parents. Yeah. And they, even though they're anti-fire, they would have used the fire for the house so that it cannot be traced back to the VFD at all. We solved it. <laughs> we solved it. We know who burned down the Baudelaire house and it was the VFD themselves, the, the anti-fire, the people who put out fires, started the fire. We didn't start the fire, but the VFD did. Okay. Well, that, that's what I've got for Count Olaf. Okay. <laughs> uh, I really like the quote when Count Olaf is like, every parent figure has either let me down or died. And when I heard that, I was like, ah, the classic, the villain, and the protagonist are the same. Yeah. Just the cycle, man. It's just one of them was rich and one of them was poor. Sad. Baudelaire's were so rich that they had training and resources that allowed them to survive and be optimistic in a harsh world, whereas Olaf didn't have any money or support growing up. So when the world became harsh, he didn't have any way to survive and took the the dark way out because he had dark influences. Yep. This is all about wealth and class. It usually is. Yeah. Okay. One other thing, the Aga. Okay. Actually, first, let me say one small thing and then another big thing. <laughs> okay. Right before this episode, I watched on YouTube the scene in the opera where Beatrice Baudelaire, quote-unquote, accidentally throws a poison dart and it hits Count Olaf's father and kills him. When I first watched it, I was like, okay, Beatrice Baudelaire accidentally did that, right? Or like, 
she accidentally did that. That was a mistake. He walked in at the wrong time. But right after she throws that dart, and I watched it like five different times, you think a normal person, if you throw a dart and it accidentally kills someone, someone that you didn't want to kill, you would be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Oh my gosh. She throws that dart, and I kid you not, she just looks hmm. blank face, cold stare. Didn't really to give much of a fuck that that hit Count Olaf's dad. You can watch it on YouTube. I watched it five different times. She just kind of stares. And I was like, maybe Count Olaf, you know, I don't think he thought it was an accident. And of course, Esme was the one who first tried to throw a poison dart. So I guess Esme started it. And you could argue that Beatrice was trying to defend herself, but it feels a little bit more suspicious than it yeah. looks on the surface. <laughs> We're really starting some conspiracies here. I know. We're like the the Tucker Carlson's of a series <laughs> of unfortunate events. <laughs> so basically, we're just pulling stuff out of the, our ass that yeah. has no evidence. Right? Yeah. Basically. I, I would no, like to yeah, argue yeah, we have like, a little yeah. bit more evidence than Tucker Carlson. I, I think we do. You're right. We, we at least started from a real place. <laughs> True. Now that I got that off my chest, um, so at the end of the whole series, when Kit and Count Olaf are giving birth slash dying, Kit and Count Olaf, at the very end of the series, when Kit has given birth and they're on the verge of death, they recite this poem, The Night Has a Thousand Eyes by Francis William Bordillon. The night has a thousand eyes and the day but one. Yet the light from the bright world dies with the dying of the sun. The mind has a thousand eyes and the heart but one, yet the light of the whole life dies when love is done. And obviously I like poetry, so I wanted to look at that poem a little bit closer. And it talks about how when the heart dies, love is done. But you can see from the fact that Count Olaf saved, tried his very best to save Kit, that he still had a heart because he still seemed to have love for Kit. And it's interesting because throughout the whole series, you think this guy has no love left. This guy has no light left. But then at the end with this poem, it's kind of like sharing that he does have at least a little bit left because he showed his love for Kit. And I think maybe that's why he laughs right before he dies is because he's realizing that oh, I guess I did have some light in my heart. Who knew that I did until this very moment? And he laughs and he dies. And this is just my interpretation. There's really no way to really tell why he, why he laughs and why that poem is recited. You can interpret it in many different ways, I think, but that was how I interpreted it. Yeah. It's almost like he's been acting for most of his life to protect himself from the real world because if you if you're projecting something that's not the real you and that thing gets hurt then you're okay but the party that's projected that's not real if that gets hurt it, it's fine because you're still fine so it's almost like he's maybe been pretending and acting his entire life as a shield to protect himself from being truly hurt or being truly vulnerable and at the end we finally see that vulnerability leak out just a little bit and we see like the true self rather than the front that he's been putting up. Wow. We are so <laughs> smart. Like we're so 
smart. Like, he's been acting this whole time. Yeah, I mean, literally and metaphorically speaking. Yes. All right. Do we want to answer a question? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's a good time. See, for someone who wasn't as excited about an unfortunate series of unfortunate events, I had I had some thoughts. I you know, there's still a lot in here. There's a lot in this series. I'm glad you finally came around to doing this episode. But what I really want to know is are you or would you be a firefighter or a fire starter? Like, would I be or am I now? Whatever, whatever your heart directs you to answer. I think I might be a fire starter in that I feel like as a human in this world, I go and do things and interact with other humans, you know, as humans usually do, and things get ignited or things kind of go in this uh, domino effect where I might go out into the community and... I interact with people and because I did a project or art or something is then ignited and started. So I kind of spun this around and made the fire starter thing seem a little bit more positive. But this is what popped into my head. Fire starting doesn't doesn't have to be bad. Right, right. So I think I ignite things not to a degree in which flames are then erupted. You're more of a, a metaphorical fire starter. Yeah, metaphorical and and not a very huge fire. It's kind of like little fires in different parts of the community. Some people who are more popular in the community or start really big projects or really big organizations, they start really massive fires. Yeah. And I have not done that, though. I start real fires. Really? Well, yeah, I mean, in... Uh, appropriately... You're an arsonist? Well, no, no. I In fire pits. uh, Oh. At campgrounds. In acceptable fire building receptacles, uh, yeah, I, I really liked Star Fire. I like that too. I, I love s'mores. Oh my Sometimes God. I just light a match just to watch it burn. I think you got some Count Olaf potential in you. Yeah. But it, in general, more seriously, I, I think that I'm more of a firefighter. I've done some fire starting, but in general, I think I'm I'm more of someone to calm things down, to take care of situations that are already in trouble. I think about that in my work life a lot, where when there's a lot of chaos going on at work, I'm I'm someone who is able to kind of step back, see the bigger picture, and then redirect things in a way that will get things done more smoothly and efficiently. That's I think that's where my skill set really is. I'm not as good at the igniting process. All right. And then next is a poem. Yeah. So I put together a poem this week for Count Ola, and (laughs) I tried to do it as much as I could in the style of a series of unfortunate events in kind of like the style of of Lemony Snicket's narration in the the television series because I thought it was kind of fun. So without further ado, uh, here's my poem. It's called VFD. Verified failure and disappointment is a phrase which here refers to a person who consistently lacks the ability to complete even simple tasks with any sort of competency. Despite attempts at valiant and fantastical do-goodery, a verified failure and disappointment will reliably fail and disappoint. It is in their very nature. So why then, when confronted with a moral quandary, 
Would a verified failure and disappointment make the right or difficult choice when their very existence inspires vapent familial discontent? My efforts would be in vain. Various fraudulent decisions at least yield a variety of fun diversions and variables for a diverse existence in this virulent and fragile dystopia. In summary, it's much more fun to start fires than it is to put them out. All right, and that is it for today's episode. Thank you all for listening. This podcast was produced, written, created, all of whatever it is to do a podcast by us, Joe Anderson, and Christiana Hennings. Thanks for listening.